Well, while you remain standing, I invite you to turn with me in God's Word to Jeremiah chapter 18. We're going to start by just reading the first 11 verses. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 646, Jeremiah 18. Beloved saints, this is God's word. Please give your attention to the reading of it. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went to the potter's house, and there he was making at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declared concerning a kingdom or a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now therefore thus, therefore say to the men of Judah, And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Let us pray that God will be pleased to minister to us through his word uh, this morning. Our gracious Father, you know our hearts, our minds, and how we struggle to believe your words of comfort how we are quicker to believe the enemy's lives than lies than to believe your truth. And if we are honest, your grace sometimes sounds foreign to our selfishness, beyond the realm of possible. Your grace sounds simply too good to be true. Help us not to judge you as if we were the standard. Help us to judge our doubts according to your word. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to just how high and inextinguishable your grace truly is. Do this even now as we open your word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Anyone who has children knows the words, but you said, you know the story? We've all been there. You plan to do something. It might be ice cream, going to the park, a movie, having a friend over. But someone got sick. Something came up. Or that child lied, did not do his or her chores, hit his or her brother or sister, and the privilege is lost. And then those words come, but you said. 
And the idea is that once you've said something, it can never change. That the last word necessarily must be what the first word was. There's no thought that circumstances can change and affect our plans. And then you know what's next, the accusation that always follows. You lied. It's unfair. And we've all seen it. And to a great extent, we understand it. We aren't shocked at that sense of indignation and injustice. In fact, the only thing that shocks us is when we hear something like this when the plans change for the better. You say something like, we're not doing chores today. We're going to go to the zoo instead. Instead, And your children just look shocked and say, but you said... And they, they can't process that it's actually changed for the better. It's not unhappiness. It's that inability to believe it because it seems too good to be true. It's almost as if the children are saying, Mom, Dad, you, you, you're pulling my leg. You, you, we're not really, are we? And we never really get over this, do we? We always struggle with change. When unwelcome change comes, it's unfair. When unexpectedly good change comes, we fear believing it lest we get our hopes up and are let down. But every good story is based on change. The first part of the story always presents a problem, a dilemma, a struggle, a barrier that we don't like. The second part of the story resolves that problem in an unexpected and yet glorious way. Every good story revolves around change, deliverance, redemption. And God's story is no exception. It is the greatest story ever told. And that's the message of Jeremiah 18 and Jeremiah's visit to the potter's house we'll see that because God is a merciful and compassionate God, his first word need not be his final word, his last word. First, we want to see God offer to change course when we repent, when we change course. Then we want to see, uh, we want to take an honest look at Israel's sin and our own, and wrestle with how we are tempted to respond with despair when we fall into sin. We just want to be honest, our temptation. And then finally, we'll look at God's unyielding offer of grace and the hope it brings and how it should teach us to seek that grace for others. Those are the things we want to see today. God's offer to change course and to show grace, our struggle to believe His offer to change course and show grace, and yet how that should transform us and teach us desire for others. Now, God's instructions in her passage to Jeremiah may have taken him by surprise. I mean, after all, Jeremiah is a prophet. He's used to hearing things like, go to the temple and preach to the people. It makes sense, right? That's what prophets do. They go to, to religious places and they preach to the people. Naturally, we expect God to come to Jeremiah. Here's your next assignment. Something grandiose. We don't expect 
go to the potter's house. It's not that no one had ever been to the potter's house. It's just the opposite. Everyone goes to the potter's house. It's like saying, go to Safeway. Go to Target. Everyone went there. That's where you went to buy dishes and plates and cups and bowls. And as Jeremiah stood there, he he was able to witness the process of the potter. Because dishes and bowls and cups take time. And in some cases, things sometimes go sideways. And as Jeremiah looked on, what the potter was working on went bad. Perhaps it collapsed. Perhaps it ripped apart or or just didn't take the right shape. Whatever the details, we're told that the vessel spoiled. We've all been there. Maybe not with clay, but we've all been working on something and it goes wrong. It could be a drawing, writing, a project around the house. What do we do when something goes wrong? We tend to give up. We want to throw it out or maybe throw it across the room. It's not our natural inclination to patiently say, this can be saved. This can be redeemed. It can be reworked. When things go bad, our temptation is to despair, to give up. But not the potter. He patiently took that spoiled lump of clay and he began to rework it into something beautiful. That's what God wanted Jeremiah to see. And then he gave Jeremiah the message he was to preach to Israel. And we think we know what's coming because we've all read Romans a lot more than we've read Jeremiah. And we think, that's right. The potter has the right to make from the same lump of clay something for destruction and something for glory. And of course, that's true, to be sure, but that's not what Jeremiah is about. The point here is that just because something goes wrong doesn't mean the story is over. God wants Jeremiah to tell them that this is how it is with him. He says that if he declares judgment on a people and they repent and they change course, he will change course and show mercy. Just because judgment has been pronounced doesn't mean it can't be averted. As long as we are alive, it's not too late. But the message doesn't end there. The opposite's also true. If God promises to bless a people and they turn from him, if they pursue their sin instead of him, he will change course and he will bring judgment instead of blessing. That's the part we don't like. We're like our children who think that promises of blessing have to be irrevocable. We want to cry out, but you said. And really our problem is that we have this tendency to want a single action to define our entire future. That might be something negative. 
And we think once you've blown it, once you've sinned, once you've done something wrong, there's no hope in seeking after God, that all is lost. That one action defines you, defines your eternity or your future. Or it might be something positive. We pray a prayer, we have a great summer, we, we have a, a, a significant event, and then we drop our guard. We let sin build in our lives because we think that since we, we had that one positive experience, all is fine and we're safe. And just as all is not lost when something goes wrong, all is not won when something goes right. Vigilance is necessary until the end. Repentance isn't just a one-time event. It's a lifestyle. God requires that we pursue him until the end. And hope is never lost for those willing to humble themselves and seek after him. But we struggle to believe this, don't we, because of just how ugly sin is. That's what we read about in verses 12 through 17. Let me read that. But they say, that is in vain. We will follow our plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of this evil heart, of his evil heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask among the nations, who has heard the like of this? The virgin Israel has done a horrible thing. Does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of Syrian? Do the mountain waters run dry, the cold flowing streams? But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They they made them stumble in their ways in the ancient roads and to walk into the side roads, not the highway, making their land a horror, a thing to be hissed at forever. Everyone who passes by it is horrified and shakes his head. Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back not my face, in the day of their calamity. God likens Israel's sins to a few things you never see in nature. It's like the high peaks no longer being covered in snow or their streams suddenly drying up. He's using these steadfast images from nature, those mountain peaks that are white, winter, summer, spring, fall, all the year long. Those streams that are constantly being fed by those snowy peaks. Every morning, people know what to expect when they wake up. The mountains will still be covered, and those high streams will still be wet. That's just what they do. It's natural. And his point is, so should be my people's obedience. What could be more natural than the people God makes following after the God who made them? In other words, sin is not natural. It's not how God made us. He made us good. He made us upright. But sin corrupts all that and it it makes us do the most unnatural, the most illogical things like rebel against the only one who has truly loved us, the only one who can help us. 
It's unnatural and it's universal. It affects every single member of the human race. And what happens when you put those two realities together? What happens when you put the unnatural and the universal nature of that? You get people who do what is unnatural and illogical. Everything gets turned on its head. We say that the unnatural is natural. We believe there's no hope. We say things like, just give up on me, I'm a lost cause. We say things like, it's just who I am. I'm, I'm not worth your time and energy. We say things like, it's just who God made me to be. What's the point in trying to change? We say, it's hopeless. You see, we're all that spoiled vessel on the potter's wheel. Broken. Torn. So much potential, all lost. And we think, well, that's that. Just throw me in the garbage. What, what use is a spoiled lump of clay? We struggle to believe that God is more concerned about how we respond to his offer for grace than how good our first act was. Instinctively, we all think that what really matters with God is how good we are, if not from the start, eventually. I am constantly amazed with how many Christians, if you ask them, why should God let you into heaven? Their response is, I try to be good. I try to keep his commands. Beloved, if that's your hope, you have no hope. Sin is universal and sin always leads to death and judgment. Israel, undeterred by God's call to repentance, decides to stay the course, to cling to their sin and their rebellion. They refuse to change direction. They refuse to ask for help. They refuse to humble themselves. And so in verse 17, God's only choice is to pronounce judgment. And it's, it's no surprise. It's what we expect. And sometimes it's what we want. Not only do we sometimes despair and expect judgment for ourselves, but sometimes we want judgment for others. We struggle to believe that grace could be for us, and we don't want it to be for others. We struggle to show grace to those who fail to meet our standards, especially when we can't make sense of the offense You ever notice how grace is appropriate when it makes sense to you and not appropriate when it doesn't make sense to you? There are times where somebody does something that we can sympathize with, we understand. It might be because we also struggle with the same temptation. Or we see the confusion that led up to it. We think it's, we can make sense out of it. It's explainable. And so we think that they should be forgiven, that they should be shown grace. But there's other times when we are unable or unwilling to make sense out of it, and we just want judgment, justice, and wrath. We struggle to truly believe that all grace is undeserved. We think that there are some times 
some people who should be shown grace and some who shouldn't. You see, even our sense of grace flows out of a perverted sense of right and wrong. And that's what Jeremiah struggles with. So let me read the last few verses, 18 through 23. Then they said, Come, let us make plots against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor the counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us strike him with the tongue, and let us pay no attention to any of his words. Jeremiah says, Hear me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of my adversaries. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they've dug a pit for my life. Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Therefore deliver up their children to famine. Give them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. May their men meet death by pestilence. Their youths be struck down by the sword in battle. May a cry be heard from their houses when you bring the plunderer suddenly upon them. For they have dug a pit to take me and laid snares for my feet. Yet you, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. Imagine you're racing down a road, driving fast. There's a big bend coming up in the road. And a warning sign on the right. Danger. Cliff ahead, road ends 500 feet. What do you do? Obviously, you get a baseball bat or a sledgehammer and knock down the sign and then keep going. We laugh, but how often is that our response to unpleasant truths? How often do we try to silence those who speak truth rather than change course? Is it really any different than knocking down a road sign thinking you've averted the danger? But that's what the Israelites do. They say, come, let us make plots against Jeremiah. Let us strike him with the tongue. Let us pay no attention to any of his words. Because when all else fails, kill the messenger. It's irrational. It never fixes anything. But we are willing to try the irrational, to believe the unbelievable, and to expect the impossible when the only alternative is humility and repentance. So how does Jeremiah respond? Well, sadly, a lot like we would. He prays that God would deliver them over to famine, widowhood, and pestilence. And then he prays this, Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Jeremiah doesn't want grace. He doesn't want a second act for Israel. He wants the word of judgment that God has sworn to be the only word he utters, He wants blood. 
But what if God's first word was his only word? What if God never changed course? What if once he pronounced judgment, that was it? What then? All we need to do is go back to the beginning. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, what's his first word? You may eat from any a tree, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day you eat of it you shall surely die. That's the first word. That's the law. He doesn't just mean they're going to die physically. He's talking about eternity here. He is warning them about hell. And we know what they did. They took the fruit to which they had no right. They ate that forbidden fruit. They rebelled. And in Adam and Eve's sin, we all fell. Rather than simply repent, they doubled down. It's just how you made me. It's just what you gave me. It's this woman. Whose fault is this, really, God? It's just who I am. Leave me alone. Don't pursue me. What if God said, okay, the clay's been spoiled? What if he gave up? What if there was no second part to this story? But that's not what God did. That's not what happened. Because God's first word doesn't need to be his last word. He told Adam and Eve that he would come and rescue them. He himself would come in the form of a man, born to a woman, and he would suffer in their place. And like Jeremiah, when he came, he was hated because he warned of the coming judgment. And instead of heeding his warnings, they decided to kill the messenger. What shocks us is that he could have stopped their plot and he didn't. He submitted. He was crucified. The most heinous and cruel way to die. He suffered in their place. All to answer his own first word of judgment so that it would not be his last word. So that his last word would be one of grace. And so, what's his final prayer on the cross? He doesn't quote Jeremiah, but it almost seems like he's thinking of Jeremiah's prayer as he reverses it and says, Father, forgive them. If we're honest, that would be a hard thing to pray. We get Jeremiah's prayer. We know how to pray for judgment for those who mistreat us. We struggle to understand Jesus' prayer. How to pray for mercy for them. But that's what God desires for us. Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And then just a few verses later, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. (laughs) Easier said than done, right? But not impossible. The first post-resurrection martyr for the faith was a man named Stephen. 
Like at the prophets before him, he proclaimed the truth and he paid with his life. Standing among those who had put Jesus to death, he said, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He called all Israel out on their refusal to listen to the prophets. He rebuked their abuse of those who warned them. (laughs) How'd they respond? Do you remember? They shouted and covered their ears. La, 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 I'm not listening. They tried to silence the messenger, but the only way to get him to truly shut up was to kill him. And do you remember what Stephen's dying prayer was? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How do you get there? How do you learn to pray like Stephen and not like Jeremiah? Now, I'm not trying to pit Jeremiah against Stephen. Jeremiah was trying to run with the horses and he was struggling to keep up. It's easy to identify with him and feel like you are in way over your head. Jesus will always be kinder, always more gracious than us. But he does want us to grow in desiring grace for those who mistreat us. He expects us to grow. So how? Much of it comes from meditating on how truly unexpected the grace is that you have received. It's okay. It's even healthy to be honest with what your sin deserves. And then ask yourself, what if God's first word was his last word? Being honest about such things will help you to bask in just how glorious and wonderful God's grace truly is. And then it will help you to look to others with new eyes, with compassionate eyes. Because when you feel entitled to God's grace, you will not seek it for others. But when you are overwhelmed by it, you will desire it for others. But you also need to learn to see things not for what they are, but for what God can make them. God let Jeremiah see something glorious, a spoiled, ruined lump of clay remade into something beautiful. It was God's lesson to Jeremiah that that it's the last word that matters. It's, It's where things end, not where they begin that matters. And that's what helps us understand the cross of Christ. Could anything be uglier and more terrible than the cross, the crucifixion of the Lord of glory? And yet it was not the last word. God used that terrible event to bring about something glorious, salvation from sin. Jesus did not stay in the grave. He he rose again on the third day. That's how God works. That's the lesson of the reworked clay. It kind of makes you wonder if the potter might have given that new vessel to Jeremiah to take home and put on a shelf as a reminder of what God does. Something to look at and remember how God transforms things. The Lord has given us such a gift. 
Before us, we have bread and wine. They are constant reminders to us of how the Lord works, how He makes wonderful things out of ruin. He invites us to come and remember that this is where where hope is, not in how good we are, but in how great He is and what He can do with spoiled lumps of clay. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward, Pastor Brian, that we might receive uh, God's gift to us this morning. Please bear with me in prayer. Our kind and gracious God, we struggle to understand your grace because it is too good, too wonderful to believe that you don't give up on us, even when we give up on ourselves, that you don't despair even when all seems ruined, that you take ruin and destruction and you make something beautiful. It's who you are. Help us to trust your good news, news that seems too good. Teach us to repent, not just once but daily. Teach us to believe in your grace and teach us to desire it for others. May all come to believe, to trust. May all receive mercy, we pray. Amen.